0: Everyone. My name is Mandy McKay, and we want to thank you for taking the time to listen to the sermon audio of Sojourn Church. Sojourn is a church that is committed to the gospel in the context of family, living on mission to the city of Portland and our world. We hope that this collection of sermons both inspires you and challenges you to live a life of intentionality where you seek to make disciples. If you'd like to learn more about our church family, you can go online and check out our website at sojournpdx.org. One quick word of encouragement before we begin this episode sermon. We at Sojourn absolutely love it that you're tuning in to what God is teaching us here. But more than anything else, we want this podcast to be supplementary to an already growing devotion to your own church body and nothing else. This collection and others like it are great in making God's word to us more available and understandable, but it can never be a healthy substitute for real participation in the body of Christ. Enjoy this sermon.
1: standing in front of that speaker again uh, yeah that's good um, i am nate uh well, And let me just say that we're thrilled to be here, and it's really it's an honor to stand before you. Um, our church has a deep love for, for you guys. Uh, we pray for you regularly. Um, we talk about you in our staff meetings regularly, in a good way, uh, not in a gossipy way. Uh, but uh, just want you to know that, that people in Texas uh, have big hearts for the city of Portland and for this church. Uh, and uh, we have uh, fallen in love with your pastor and his family. And so um, we'll continue to have them out to visit us. And uh, what is not the prettiest part of Texas, we have some pretty parts, but we don't live there. Uh, and uh, so we got to enjoy the Multnomah Falls and do the hike to the top of the falls last night. And we live in a completely flat area. So the, the, the grade to the top was a little much for us, but we did it. And, uh, and we accomplished it. Uh, And so uh, I'm married to a person named Jamie, who is by far the better half of of our family. Uh, I tell people at our church that they like me and they love her. Uh, And that's generally the truth uh, is the way it works there. And I have two kids, a 10-year-old son named Luke. Uh, who's into baseball and video games, and is taking up golf, which I'm hoping he keeps up because I like golf. Uh, and then a daughter, Hannah, who's six, who is uh, a tomboy or a princess and everything in between, and she's a mess. Uh, and so um, that's us. Uh, I, uh, in a previous life, was a school teacher and a coach, uh, and so uh, God did something big in my life and uh, brought me out of that and brought me into student ministry, which is a calling for sure. Uh, and uh, but. It it's, it's uh, provided me the great adventure of a life, and uh, I told my wife the other day, we live one of the most unique lives that I can imagine. Uh, and so, and let me tell you something, whatever God calls you to, some of you are, some are missionaries, some of you moved here uh, in your lives, and some of you are going home in a few days or whatever, but uh, the adventure that God calls you to is, is, will be the most fulfilling job that you'll ever have, uh, whatever that is. If you're a doctor and you're going to serve him that way, if you're called to be a part of a church plan, if he's calling you to be a pastor or a missionary or whatever, the the thing that God calls you to will be the most fulfilling and rewarding thing in your life. And it may be the most difficult thing in your life. Those two things are not the opposite. They usually go together. Uh, And so I want to encourage you guys that are here on the ground all the time serving that uh, what you're doing is worth it. The kingdom's so worth it, and uh, God has transformed much worse cities than this. That's what I was thinking of going through, you know, reading the the letters through the New Testament, and and that God has done uh, more, uh, just he he can do more, and he will do more than what we think. Uh, And just to be faithful and to stay, stay faithful in prayer. Anyway, I was thinking uh, Matt asked me to preach on this idea of sitting around the table. Around the table, I love this. Um, you have an intimacy around a table that you don't get anywhere else. That's why um, coffee shops are are so good. Uh, people don't maybe know that. Maybe they think it's the drink, but really, I think it's the experience of the coffee shop that uh, that 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 we really value is sitting around a table, sharing something with another person. There's something intimate uh, intimate about eye to eye contact about um, interacting with that person. When we sit down to a meal together, we don't know each other, right? You have Texans on one side and everyone else on the other. But when we sit together at a table outside and share a meal, all of a sudden we can be- become friends. And so uh, we have a saying at our church that we say, what we do uh, inside the four walls of the building is not church. Uh, that's when we gather together. It's almost a huddle. Uh, If you're a football fan, they huddle up after each play, say, all right, here's what we're going to go do. And then they break the huddle and they go and they go out and do it. And so really what is church is not necessarily what's happening in here, but it's what is going on in the everyday mundane parts of life, in the Monday to Saturday parts of life, if you will. Uh, And so as we break the huddle today, our, our job is to go out and God has a mission for us. Uh, and so we're going to look today at the role, some of, some of the roles that God has given uh, in His Word. So if you've got your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 10. Uh, this is a, you're going to, part of this is going to be real familiar to you, I think. Uh, and then maybe some of this is not, um, but uh, each family has certain roles. There's a, there's a husband, a wife, a, uh, a mother, a father, uh, children. Uh, A team has roles, a quarterback, a wide receiver, a running back, a tight end, a a center. Uh, We had a discussion about soccer jerseys the other day, how wide is the best player on the team, usually number 10. Uh, Someone can tell us the answer to that. We would love to hear it, but usually the best player is always number 10. Uh, At least the one who scores the most goals is usually given number 10. He has a role, put the ball in the net. Right? The goalkeeper has a completely different role to do. All right? And he's, his job is to keep the ball out of the net on the other end. Okay, um, And so Christians in the New Testament are given many roles, uh, and specifically on what they're to do as husbands, wives, children, as pastors, as elders, as teachers, as servants. Right? But in this passage of Scripture, Luke chapter 10, We see specifically three roles that Jesus kind of enunciates here. We're not going to read every verse of this chapter. We're going to hit some of the the high points. okay? Uh, And so uh, the Christian life, like I said, it mainly takes place outside of here. And so the the roles that we take on, and the first one we're going to look at is the role of an ambassador, a person who's a representative of Christ. We're here as ambassadors of our home church right? But also as ambassadors of Christ, right? The first role we'll look at is the role of ambassador, right? Um, They may send uh, you one day to a foreign country and you're to represent the United States government there. That's an ambassador. You have probably have a badge, Uh, Usually ambassadors have a badge. One time a Census Bureau worker came to my house over and over again, like trying to do the census, and every time she had this badge like on a string. You know know what I'm talking about, where you pull it off and you let it go and it elastic's back? You know what I'm talking about? She had one of these badges and she kept doing this, like putting it in my face. I'm with the Census Bureau like every time. And so I knew who she represented, right? She was an ambassador for the United States uh, Census Bureau. So the ambassador is one we're going to look at. We're going to look at the role of neighbors. What is a neighbor? Look at a very familiar story of the Good Samaritan. You're going to know that tale. Uh, probably if we could go up and down the street and, and, and ask somebody, what is a Good Samaritan? They would know that reference, even if they're not a believer, even if they're far out of God's word. They've heard that terminology before. Uh, and then finally, we'll talk about being a worshiper. So the three roles we're going to look at in this scripture are ambassadors, Right. And we're moving from an outward uh, missional viewpoint to an inner personal relationship style uh, relationship there. And then so we ambassadors, neighbors and then uh, to worshipers. All right. Let's look. Luke 10, chapter one. I mean, Luke, chapter 10, verse one. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him. Some of your translations may say 70, All right, There's biblical evidence in the original manuscripts for it could be 70 or 72. It's not like the story changes that much either way, Um 72 is symbolic. In Genesis chapter 10, there's a list of nations after, uh, after the flood, and they list all the nations of the descendants of, Ab- of Noah, right? and they list out 70 nations there. So I believe it's a symbolic number there that kind of represents that this is a, supposed to be a worldwide, a global um, representation here. And they sent them two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to go. So he's sending out this 70 before he would go there. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Maybe you kind of feel that way, Sojourn. You, you you, You feel that, hey, we're here in a massive city and we need more people. And you do. Right? I mean, we're going to see uh, that Jesus understands that. Right? He knows what uh, ministry is to take place. Right? And he says, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers, uh, laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. He didn't tell them to pray for an easier job or less harvest. He said, pray for others to join with you. That tells me right there that, that whenever a person comes to faith in Christ, they're not just coming to faith to go to heaven. There's not this idea that we, we do a lot of surveys, and that's, that's kind of the uh, people's, st- uh, if they have n- very little understanding of Christianity or just a little bit, that, that's like their idea is that, hey, this is a punch your ticket to get to heaven kind of thing. Um, but that's not what I see here. What I see here is going out and calling others to come join the mission. All right, He says, pray that others would come and join the harvest. All right. harvesting's hard work. Anybody ever worked on a farm here? No, it's hard work. All right, Caleb has. Uh, you have, you worked on a farm. It's hard. Is it hard work, Elliot? Yeah, it was. Uh, and so <laughs> hard work. Uh, and so they're asking others to come do it. All right. Verse three, go your way. Behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whoever, whatever house you enter, first say, peace to this house. And as the son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. So they're having to go out in faith as well. They don't have hotels booked. We, we booked hotels like in February to come here in July. Right? We didn't have a worry of where we were going to stay when we got here. But they're sending them out two by two saying, go to these cities when you get there, you need to rely that somebody is going to open their home to you. All right? That's a walk of faith, isn't it? All right? I think that's the way it is. Whether we're in an established church that's been there, our church has been there like 140 years, uh, or whether we're in a brand new church startup, uh, this idea that we've got to walk on this kind of faith, that God will provide what it is that we need. All right? uh, and even, even more than that, don't take any money with you. Don't take an extra pair of sandals, no knapsack. All right, just take the shirt on your back and go and do what I've asked you to do, to call others to join the cause. All right, verse 7, "'And remain in the same house, "'if you find a man of peace, "'eating and drinking what they provide, "'for laborers deserve his wages. "'Do not go from house to house.'" Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick. I always use this verse when I go on mission trips, like especially to foreign countries. I'm like, this is what we're doing. Whatever they put on the table, you eat it. I don't care if you're picky. You eat it. Anyway, that's, a, that's my interpretation there. It doesn't matter uh, necessarily in this context. Um, whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your own town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. This was something they would do when they walked through Gentile towns and they left. They would try to leave the dirt there uh, symbolically and uh, even to a degree of leaving the actual dirt there. And nevertheless, know this, the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom, for that town. He goes on, we're not going to read all these verses, but he puts a curse on those who would not receive the messengers upon those cities that didn't receive. He, he says, man, it would be, it's going to be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon, for Sodom, for Old Testament cities that were ruined because of their rejection of God. He's saying, if you won't receive my ambassadors, then the ruin is coming. He's going to go on to say that. But I want to look mainly about the roles here of an ambassador. Three things I see here on this passage about being an ambassador for Christ. Number one is that ambassadors represent their king. When an ambassador goes out, they would go out in, in, in biblical times with the seal of the king, either on their garments or on a document or on a flag, on a standard. They would go out with the seal of their king. If that's a lion or if it's an eagle or whatever, uh, I don't know what all the sigils are from, from you know, uh, that time period. But they would go out and they would have something and people would know who they represented. If We're an ambassador for Christ. We've got to be a representative of our king. Right. And that's that's the reality is whether you think you are, or you're not, you are. Right. But are we bearing, right, the crest, the seal, the, the things that let others know we're a follower of Jesus, there's a couple of things Jesus, in the, in the Gospel of John, he says, if you abide in my love, right, that they will know you're my disciples. If you abide in my word, they'll know you're my disciples. All right? And he says in John 15, you abide in me, if you remain in me, you'll bear much fruit. And so an ambassador must be those things. He must be a person of love. If we're a follower of Jesus, Jesus was, was loved. When he was there, he loved. We've got uh, to, to love people. All right, they went out, they went preaching, teaching, healing, casting out demons, healing the sick. Um, and, and it was important. Uh, Paul understood this, 2 Corinthians 5 verse 20, he says this, he says that we are ambassadors for Christ. Uh, God is making his appeal through us. You see, he recognized this fact. That God, when Jesus ascended into heaven 40 days after his resurrection, that he left a band of followers there, right, 12 close uh, followers, one of which Judas was removed or removed himself, right? and then the Bible gives us a number of about 120 other people, that they were left there as ambassadors for Christ. Right? They, the world rejected Jesus when he was here. He was here for 33 years, and at the end of his life, he he lived a perfect life. He loved unconditionally. He served, he healed, he cast out demons. He did nothing but good, and what did it get for him? He got put on a cross, all right? And so he left behind his followers to do it, and guess what? Those 12 or 11 Jewish men and 120 Jewish people, they have been involved through discipleship and missions in reaching the city of Beaumont, Texas, and the city of Portland, Oregon. Because those guys started it, and those men and women, they started right there as taking up this idea of being ambassadors. And the gospel spread, right? And then we can read the New Testament that uh, needs w- never you know, went unmet. People in the church, their needs were always met. Uh, oh, my iPad shut down on me. That's not good. All right. So ambassadors represent their king. Number two, ambassadors have a mission. Uh, an ambassador is going to do a certain job. Right? For ambassadors of Christ, uh, they are sent out. In fact, these 70 or 72 here, they are, used, they are described using the same word that we use to describe the apostles, the 12 apostles that were walked with Jesus. That word is apostello. Right? We just transliterated it to the word apostle. Right? The, the exact same word there is used, that these people were sent out for a mission for a purpose. Right? Ambassadors have a mission. Emba- ambassadors are sent out as lambs among wolves, Innocent. The world, man, if we, if we just think about the world we live in, some of the things we see, some of the, the scary things that I see in the world, and I think about how my children are going to come up in a world that I didn't really come up in, I get really worried and afraid and um, emotions that I shouldn't really have. Uh, but then I think about uh, the gospel. And I had a conversation with my wife and some of her family just last week. And we were talking about uh, we were talking with one who has a brand new baby, eight months old, and just the world that 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 baby's going to come up in. And I said, you know, the really the only hope for this generation is the same that's for our generation. And that's the gospel of Christ. Is that that's the really the only hope? Uh, we can look at the world and it's scary, and we can look at politics and it's frustrating, and we can look at the economy and maybe it's going good now, but it maybe at some point it won't. And the reality is that the only hope that we have that is unshakable will never go away is the truth of the resurrected Christ. Right. All right, in this city, in our city, and see, our city has a little bit of opposite problem of here. Everyone in our city believes they're a Christian and they have no fruit in their lives. Right, you guys may have, there may be a completely different problem here in Portland where people are just they don't want anything to do with being a Christian. In our city, it's the exact opposite. It's almost weird if you say I'm not a Christian. And so we talk to people all the time, and they're like, "Yeah, yeah, I'm, am am a Christian. I'm a Christian. My grandmother went to church. Well, what does that mean, right?" Uh, and so, but the reality is that that, that the world is against this. Uh, the world is against the the force that God is doing. The message of hope. We don't. We may not understand. there, like, "Why are people hate, hating the gospel?" This they do. Uh, he's sending them out as lambs against uh, against wolves. So force isn't going to do it. We can't militantly take over for the gospel. The only way is proclaiming the truth, proclaiming the hope and the good news. All right? And you're going to feel unqualified sometimes. Uh, our students have felt that yesterday. Uh, hailing people in the park to come take a survey it was very intimidating. You've probably done it. You get it. Uh, and honestly, I don't feel qualified for that. I'm not a salesman. I... Uh, I'm not a fundraiser, right? I'm not good at that. But um, I just give that to God and, and walk out. And so in your calling, you may feel unqualified at some point in time. Uh, you may feel like a lamb among wolves. And that's okay because God's walking through that with you. All right. And finally, ambassadors bring hope. These people brought hope. There were people who were uh, enslaved by demonic forces that they went out and they healed them and they preached and their lives were changed. I don't know if you've ever felt being enslaved by an addiction or an anxiety or a depression or anything like that. And when Christ lifts that burden from you, that is literally like taking handcuffs off of a person. That is literally like taking a hundred pound weight off a person's back. So when they left, there were people there who had hope that did not have hope before. Uh, Those who were sick Uh, I told somebody yesterday, if I lived in biblical times, Jesus would have to heal my eyesight because I am blind without my glasses on. I mean, I'm blind. Uh, I failed the driving test. They wouldn't even let me drive the car without my glasses on, okay? So uh, imagine if you're that person and they went out and healed the blindness and that person saw again. Man, there was hope at the end of that. And we live in a hopeless world to some degree. Our world uh, and our our generation, this Generation Z, I try to study Generation Z because uh, doing student ministry as you get older, what you realize is you're not like the students uh, that you're ministering to that much anymore. And that's okay. They don't really expect you to be. If I used the, the slang that they do, they would think I was a dork anyway. So uh, I don't try to do it. Uh, I just try to learn why they're doing the things they're doing. But uh, in doing that, what I've learned is that there is more uh, depression, anxiety, and suicide in Generation Z than in any generation in the history of our country. And we can go into the causes of that or whatever later, um, but I want to read this to you from a uh, psychologist um, at the San Diego State University. Dr. Gene Twin, says this, uh, that psychologically, that this generation are more vulnerable than millennials were. Uh, how many millennials are in here? I mean Generation Z, okay? So we got a little bit of both. Uh, that they're more, and this is this is, uh, on an average here, of course, that rates of teen depression and suicide have skyrocketed since 2011. It's not an exaggeration to describe Generation Z as being on the brink of the worst mental health crisis in decades. And she says this, this is her opinion, much of this deterioration can be traced to their phones. So let's let that sit on you for, for, the, for the rest of the week. That sat on me for a while. But here, I'm just what i'm trying to say is not put your phone down but what i am trying to say is we have a message of hope to bring that the world desperately needs that your phobia or that your failed relationship or that your bad parents or your divorced parents or the whatever it is that you are identifying yourself with is not what you need to identify yourself with it is jesus christ and if i if i am identified with christ then my failures and everything that i've kind of have going against me, when I compare the, to, the, to the person of Jesus Christ, all of a sudden, I'm okay. And I have somebody that will come alongside me through the church and bear a burden with me, Right, all of a sudden it seems bearable. Now I have two or three friends who are praying with me and are training me and discipling me, walking through it with me. All of a sudden, man, I'm okay. I have hope again. Uh, and that's the beauty of the church. Man, the gospel has the power to lift the veil of darkness and to bring hope. So ambassadors represent their king, they have a mission, and they bring hope. All right, let's look at this next story. Luke chapter 10, verse 25, let's skip there. Our next role is that of a neighbor. You all know this story, the the good Samaritan. Behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? So this man came up here to trick Jesus. He, didn't, he already knew the answer to this question. This is a hypothetical type question that he already knew uh, the answer to. He was an expert in the law, a lawyer. And when I say the law, I'm not talking about the bar exam in our country. I'm talking about the first five books of the Old Testament. Uh, he knew Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deut- Deuteronomy, Numbers. He knew those books, right? All right? He was an expert on Levitical law of the Old Testament, And so he knew the answer to this question before he asked it. And he said to him, what is written in the law? Jesus said, how do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your strength with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. He actually knew the answer. Uh, And he said this to him. And Jesus said, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But uh, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Right? I think that's something that we can relate to in our culture, that, that we understand that we need to love everybody around us, but we will draw a line and say, well, who is the person I really have to love? Our culture does this. Man, we, we, like, to, we like to say, you know what? I have a love for all people except for fill in the blank, whatever it is, except for Democrats, except for Republicans, except for whatever, Right? except for Jews, atheists, Muslims, whatever it is. We, that's what we like to do, right? And that's what this lawyer's trying to do. He's trying to kind of catch Jesus in a trap of that. Okay? Um, let's see here. Verse 30. Jesus replied to him with a story. Now, here's the thing. I don't believe this is a parable. Some people might say this is a parable. I believe that either this story actually happened or that this was such a realistic thing that could have happened that Jesus is telling it as if it's actually happened, right? There's usually, if there's a parable, it will say something like, and Jesus told a parable to illustrate this. But for right here, it doesn't do that, right? So I think that this is either a very realistic telling of something that that may have happened or something that may have actually happened. That's just kind of what I think about it. Jesus said this, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers. It's a very dangerous road. It's about 18 miles long. It's high elevation to low elevation. There's lots of places uh, for robbers to hide on the side of the road. So a lot of people got robbed here. Uh, he fell among robbers and they stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, right, a priest, the descendants of Aaron, um, one of the, the people who were experts in the law they helped they were the pastors of the time if you will right he just passed right on by all right and then a levite levite is also a person that worked in the church they're not a descendant of Aaron in the old testament but they're uh descendant from the from the tribe of levi and they also helped in the sacrifices so they were worship leaders of the time right they he also walked past him all right for 32 uh, likewise a levite when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side but a Samaritan, an enemy, all right, Samaritans were non-Jewish people. They were descendants of people who were in the Old Testament were Jewish descent that um, had married and had children with people who were of Assyrian ascent and Samarian ascent. And so they were sort of a half breed of people that, that on both sides, no one liked them. All right? They were sort of outcast culture. Uh, it says, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. If you want to circle a word there, that's the word that I think of when it comes to being a neighbor is right there, compassion. That he had compassion. He empathized with his word, with his, with his plight. He had compassion. And his compassion led him to go and to bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal, gave him his ride, uh, and brought him to the inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever you spend, I will repay when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? And he said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Being a neighbor is our greatest uh, opportunity to reflect Christ's character. Because he was a man of mercy, right? He wept at the gates of Jerusalem over what was going on in that city, right? Wherever he went, people would come to him simply to have their problems solved. And he always, it said his heart was filled with mercy. His heart was filled with compassion and he would heal them, right? That's the key. Jesus had compassion for those around him. All right. Ephesians 4.2 uh, says that being rich in mercy, that's how he describes Jesus, that he's rich, he's wealthy, he has an abundance of mercy. All right. Being a good neighbor is about imitating Christ, imitating our Lord, who was a person of great mercy. All right. the, the lawyer wanted to define the terms of everything. All right. and Jesus just destroyed that by just saying, go out and love the people who need to be loved. All right. And his his questioning was wrong, right? His question was, "How can I be a uh, was Who is my neighbor?" Instead, his question should have been, "How can I be a good neighbor?" So Jesus takes his question, flips it upside down, and says, "Hey, here's what a neighbor is. Go and do it." Romans five six says this: at just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's mercy, All right? Christ was godly. He was God Himself. Right? The Bible describes him as the son of God, his own essence. It tells us that he lived a sinless life. He never broke any of the laws of the Old Testament. He never hated his neighbor. He never stole. He never lied. Right, When you have children one day, you'll learn they'll steal and lie when they're like three years old. Right? You don't have to teach them to do it. They just do it. Jesus didn't do that. Imagine parenting Jesus. That would have been good in one sense and intimidating in another sense, right? Because you're like, man, this child literally is perfect. Uh, and then imagine being Jesus' brother. That, that's why they hated him. Uh, James was his brother and hated him before he saw him uh, resin from the grave. They didn't like him. Right? Because that was their brother and he never did anything wrong. My sister was, I felt like my sister was that way. She never got in trouble, but I would gotten a lot of trouble. But at just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's Romans 5, 6. There's no logical reason for this man to stop and help his enemy on the side of the road. But the truth is that mercy doesn't need a reason. Jesus didn't need a reason to do what he did. He just did it out of love. There was no logical reason that Christ should die godly for ungodly. But he did. Second thing, being a neighbor is relational. You can't be a neighbor if you don't know people, all right? You can't be a neighbor if you're not out in the society and the culture. We cannot be monks cloistered away and be a good neighbor, okay? Uh, that, that time period is over. Uh, they served a purpose in, in the kingdom, but for now, we've got to be in the culture. We can't pull ourselves out of the culture and say, you know what? I'm going to live for Christ in my own small bubble and have any impact because you won't. You can impact only the people inside the bubble, And so we've got to live out and about in the coffee shops, in the workplaces, on the buses, in the bike lanes of our city. We got to ride scooters today downtown, which was awesome. Uh, and so uh, I felt like I was more of a Portlander now that I, uh, I rode in the green bike lane in the middle of, this, of the street. That is foreign. No one rides bicycles around us because you would die. Uh, people do not look out for pedestrians. You would die if you ride a bicycle in Beaumont. I'm pretty, pretty sure of that. Uh, and so uh, that was, you know, just being a part of the culture you're in. But at the same time, knowing that I'm going into that culture with a mission. All right. It's relational. Right, being a neighbor is not really about geography. Right, it's not really about race. It's not really about citizenship. It's about opportunity. All right. Write that down. If you would, being a neighbor is really about opportunity. The Samaritan had an opportunity. The Levite had an opportunity and the priest had an opportunity, but only one of them was a neighbor. The one who took the opportunity to love someone who needed loving. Hmm. Jesus took this story about being a neighbor from general to specific. The lawyer wanted to do it. Well, who is my neighbor generally? Jesus told him the exact story about who his neighbor was, right? He moved from general to specific. He moved from debating to doing. If we have to debate, should I help this person? Then we're not a good neighbor, right? We're to go help. Uh, he, he moved it from duty to love. I have to help this person, or, you know what? I see them with Christ's eyes. I see them with a heart of compassion and I want to serve. And being a neighbor, we must be part of our culture. And he's, or being a neighbor must be part of our culture. Jesus left the story with go and do likewise. This is not just a cool story that we're to encourage with. This is a story that we're to learn from. It's a story that's to lead to action. Let me tell you a story about a guy named uh, D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody was an evangelist in the turn of the century, uh, mainly in Chicago. Uh, D.L. Moody is one of the first to go around and have, like, big revivals in cities. Uh, he helped start the YMCA, if you're familiar with that, this, this idea. It's because of D.L. Moody's ministry that churches have gymnasiums in them. They kind of this whole bit. But D.L. Moody was a preacher, and he had a guy that would go and sing with him, like Ira Sankey. All right? Those names are not that important, but of this story, I want to read this to you. Um, they would go city to city, and um, they were at one time attending a convention in Indianapolis. Mr. Moody asked his singer, Ira Sankey, to meet him at 6 o'clock one evening at a certain street corner. When Sankey arrived, Moody put him on a box. You can imagine the street corner in downtown Portland. They put him on a box uh, and asked him to sing. And it was not long before a crowd gathered, because he was doing some street performing. And then Moody spoke briefly, inviting the crowd to follow him to a nearby opera house. Before long, the auditorium was filled, and the evangelists preached the gospel to the spiritually hungry people. All right? And then when the delegates to the convention began to arrive at the opera house, Moody stopped preaching and said, Now we must close as the brethren of the convention wish to come and discuss the question, How to Reach the Masses. You see, these guys were in a convention talking about how to reach the masses, and Moody and Sankey were out reaching the masses. And so it's a matter of who's my neighbor? How can I be a neighbor? Really, it's about going and being a neighbor. All right? All right, and finally, the last relationship is worshipers. And I think, honestly, these things sort of work in reverse to me. If I look at the process of my life as a follower of Christ, that if I'm going to be a worshiper, which is the last role that we're talking about, last relationship, if I have a relationship with Christ, then that's going to lead into a desire to be a great neighbor, a desire to love those who need loving. And then it's going to lead me to be on a mission, to be an ambassador of Christ. All right, let's read this, this cool story about some sisters in Jesus, and we'll wrap up. As they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary. Mary's mentioned, Mary of Bethany is mentioned three or four times in the Gospels, and each time she's sitting at Jesus' feet doing something. So she was very attentive to uh, his teaching. One time she broke the jar of perfume and washed his feet, if you remember that story. Uh, This time she's sitting listening to teaching. Uh, But And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious. I like this story. My mom's name is Martha, so I like this story. Uh, Martha, Martha, are you anxious and troubled about many things? But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. There was obviously chores to be done in that house, right? Martha and Mary had served. They prepared a meal. They invited people in. But at some point, one sister decided sitting at Christ's feet and communing with him was more important than washing the dishes or serving the plate. You see, there's there's this idea that like I can't be I got to have the attitude of Mary and not the attitude of Martha. I'm here. I don't think that's the point of the tale here. I think the point of the tale is that there's always service to be done. Right? All of you are here because you want to serve the Lord. I have a feeling. Right? But sometimes the most dangerous and harmful thing you can do is serve God without meeting with Him first. And let me tell you, the most important thing you can do if you ever want to serve the Lord in any capacity, either you're a church planner or a pastor or a wife or a husband or any way, a parent, a teacher, the most important thing that you need to work with, and I know that Matt and Andrea know this, i serving in India with IMB and serving here now, the most vital thing that you can do is to have a vibrant relationship with Jesus Christ. You cannot pour out of an empty cup. That's why Martha was frustrated. She didn't get it. Right? She was ready to go do things. She was ready to serve. She was ready to be there. But she did not understand this idea of meeting with Christ. And I don't know all of you, but if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're not going to get this point is that uh, what I do in my life uh, all comes out of a relationship with Jesus Christ. I say there's, there's two kind of relationships in life. A vertical relationship, that would be a relationship between us and God, and we cannot know God except for Christ, right? We are, we are able to know God because Jesus came and, and broke down the walls, the barriers that separated us from God, the barriers of our sin, Right? The barriers of death that kept us from having an intimate relationship with God. He came and broke those down by dying on the cross and rising from the grave again. Right? We can know God personally because of that. Right? Uh and, and when we do, that affects what I call horizontal relationships. A lot of you may have heard this before, are those relationships that we have with everything else on this world, with nature, with uh, with our family, uh, with our job, with people that we worship with. Right. Everything is affected by this relationship. And In this, this instant um, is that we got to be ambassadors to the world, right? We have to be good neighbors to those who need our help. But most importantly, we must know God and we must be spending time with God. Some are missionaries. You're going to get tired and you may be there. You've got to spend time with God. Not because you have to, because you want to. Right? And we, we do a discipleship uh, study with, uh, with people. And we, the lesson I just did with two men that I'm discipling back home was about quiet, having a quiet time. And one of the, the things is like, what if you don't feel like having a quiet time? And the answer is so brutally simple. It's do it anyway, because it brings God pleasure. And that's our motivation, man, is that we're trying to spend time with God. Right? Listening, talking, reading the scriptures, praying, meditating. Right. Not the kind of meditation where I empty my mind and, and, and just take everything out of my mind, but where I'm taking the scriptures and thinking about them and putting them into my mind. Psalm one says it's the man who sits not under the counsel of the world of the wicked, but he delights in the law of the Lord. That man is planted beside a streams of water, and his fruit will be abundant, and his leaf will not wither. That's spending time with God and his word is so important. We don't have to choose service over a relationship with God. There's both of them. We need to be a Mary and a Martha. But we can't be a Martha without being a Mary. Do you see what I'm saying here? We've got to be sitting at the feet of Christ, understanding His teachings, knowing Him, and that will fuel our service. Few things are more damaging than trying to work for Christ without meeting with Him. That leads to legalism. If I'm out serving, I'm serving more than the next guy, why aren't they here? There's no grace in that. We learn grace from being under God's teaching and spending time with Him, and then by going out and serving, we're able to practice grace. Jesus says it Himself, John 15, 5, He said, Apart from Me, you can do nothing. You can try as hard as you want to pull the boulder uh, of the kingdom forward, and if you are not uh, with Christ, you cannot do it. You can't. You can't make a dent in this city without, without being with Jesus Christ. Apart from Him, you can do nothing. I'm going to say this, what we do with Christ is far more important than what we do for Christ. What we do with Christ is more important than what we do for Christ. Many people have done many things for God and have been empty inside because they didn't really know the Lord. Your service, your ministry, your mercy, it all flows out of your relationship with Jesus Christ. Uh, Charles Wesley and John Wesley were some evangelists in the 1800s, and they also were hymn writers. Anybody ever sang hymns out of a hymn book before? Okay, Uh, you've probably sung a lot of hymns by the Wesley brothers. Uh, They also were the the founding fathers of Methodism or the Methodist Church. Uh, And so, one line of a hymn that Charles Wesley wrote, I want to read to you that stands out, and then we'll we'll close up. Says this: "Faithful to my Lord's commands." I still would choose the better part. Serve with careful Martha's hands and loving Mary's heart. That's our call, to serve and to love. All right, let's pray together.
0: Thanks for listening to our sermons podcast. We hope it was helpful for you as you continue on the mission of Jesus and the journey of faith. If you sense God doing something in you and would like to talk to one of us about it, or if you'd just like to learn more about what God is doing in our lives, please reach out to us over social media or email, or check out our website at SojournPDX.org. We look forward to hearing from you soon.